Please be opening your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. This morning we're moving on from Jesus' contentious encounter with the, that Jerusalem Inquisition that we've been on for so long. And it's aftermath. And we're entering a new section of Matthew's Gospel known as the Retirement and the Perean Ministries. And it begins here in 1521 and goes all the way through the end of chapter 21. We know where this story is headed. It's headed toward the cross and an empty tomb. But right now, his time has not yet come. He still has some work to do. We pick up with some of that here in Matthew 15, 21 through 28. When Jesus went away from there, he withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. We've got eight points, so we'll be here until 6.30 tonight. We're going to look at this place that Jesus retreats to, the person that they encounter, her plea, the, a predictable Jewish response, her perseverance, an actual put-down from Jesus, her poorness of spirit on display, and then a pronouncement of mercy here at the very end. We'll begin with this place in Matthew 15.21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. We see this verb withdrew several times in the book of Matthew. And each time the withdrawal is a response to a dangerous situation. We see that and he's escaping. In 2.12 the Magi were warned not to return to Herod so they withdrew. Remember that? Another way. And Joseph withdrew because of dangers from Herod and then from Archelaus later. In 4.12 Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested and he withdrew into Galilee. And then, most recently, when, when um, he heard that John had been murdered, he withdrew. Again, remember, to get alone by himself with his disciples. But by himself wasn't in the cards for Jesus. Because the crowds heard about Jesus withdrawing, remember, in chapter 14, and they flocked to him for healing. The more he healed, the more word got out, and the more word got out, the more people came, and the more he healed, and of course, the more word got out. It didn't matter how tired Jesus was or how much danger the attention might put him in. Jesus' compassionate heart compelled him, and he continued his attention-drawing healing ministry. Ultimately, the attention led to our latest encounter with the Jerusalem Pharisees and scribes. And clearly, Jesus wasn't as concerned with healing his broken relationships with the scribes and Pharisees as he was with healing the masses of their sicknesses. 
In fact, when they came to Jesus from Jerusalem, they questioned him to find fault. And Jesus only infuriated them all the more, like we saw. The Galilean Pharisees wanted to destroy Jesus all the way back in 1214. And now... Uh, the concerned disciples point out in 1512, do you not know that these Pharisees, the ones with even more clout than the local Pharisees, were offended when they heard Jesus' statement? Yeah, Jesus was aware. But his disdain for a false teaching of the Pharisees compelled him to rebuke and correct them just as much as his compassion compelled him to heal the masses. So Jesus' great passion led to many dangerous situations, and here it has again. So once again, in verse 21, we see that they, they went away from there. They're getting away from this, this danger, and they're withdrawing. But where did they go? They went to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And that's an unusual place for a Jew to go. Why? Well, because Tyre and Sidon epitomized pagan Gentile corruption. Worthlessness. They were a wicked, evil people. Both cities were typical seaports. You know, you've heard cuss like sailors? Well, it's always been that way. The seaports are bad places. Even contemporary pagan cultures thought of these cities as godless and immoral. One of Tyre's kings was so proud and evil that Ezekiel used him as a picture of Satan himself in Ezekiel 28. Amos 1.9 records the ancient citizens of Tyre had sold many of God's people into slavery. The Jews hated these nations really bad, despised them, detested them. You think of how that Jonah thought of the Ninevites. It's kind of how that the Jews, the current Jews of Jesus' day, thought about the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they just wanted God to judge them. And why did he go there? Well, the Galilean Pharisees wanted to destroy him. King Herod's already had John the Baptist killed and was paranoid because he thought that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. And now this inquisition with the, all the authority of Jer Jerusalem behind them has taken great offense to the fact that Jesus ignored uh, their uh, rebuke and refused to repent of re disregarding their traditions. He didn't care that they wanted him to repent of that because it wasn't sinful. What's happening here is clear. When Jesus tried to withdraw into Jewish territories, the Jewish crowds, crowds flocked to him. So now he goes where no traditional Jew would ever want to go. He goes to Tyre and Sidon. Jews who were blessed enough to live in Israel prided themselves in staying there. They didn't like to leave Israel anymore and I like to leave Maynardville. They hated it. They wanted to be right at home. They avoided even venturing into Gentile districts. And when circumstances demanded that they did, that they would literally, we get this, they would shake the dust from their feet when they, before they came back into Jewish territories. Because they saw the dust of other places like Tyre and Sidon as defiling, as unclean. They didn't want that to even stick to them and them to bring it into their Jewish lands. So if Jesus finally wanted to escape to a safe place to rest and recover, well, this move made sense, didn't it? And you notice there's not any crowds. He finally got away from all the Jewish crowds you know, flocking to him so that they could be alone. He wouldn't be followed. And since he wasn't concerned with their clean or unclean rules concerning food, their rules about Gentile dust didn't bother him either. He could go there, and he and his disciples would get that rest that they wanted. So this wasn't a mission to pagan cities like Jonah's mission to Nineveh. 
But it was a retreat to a place where Jesus and his disciples could be away from Jewish opposition, where they could be away from the Jewish crowds making demands on him for ministry. Jesus wanted to go completely unnoticed. We know that from Mark 7, 24, a parallel passage. It says that Jesus went up, got up and went away from there to the regions of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know it, yet he could not escape notice. And who is it that finds him? Well, it's a the person that finds him is a Canaanite woman from that region came out. Verse 22, a Canaanite woman from that region. Matthew calls her a Canaanite, but Mark in Mark 7:26, he calls her a Syrophoenician woman. Well, which one is it? Well, it's both. Well, how can it be both? Because well, Mark uses the contemporary word that's used for people from that place at that time. Everybody called them Syrophoenician, including themselves. They wouldn't have said, hey, I'm a Canaanite woman. She wouldn't have said that. She would have said, I'm a Syrophoenician woman. And everybody around there would have, except for one group of people that would have called them Canaanites. Guess who that was? The Jews. They would have called them Canaanites. Canaanite wasn't an ethnic term that was used by anybody at that time except for by these Jews. By the time of Matthew's writings, basically only traditional Jews used this term Canaanite for people of Tyre and Sidon. These hardcore traditional Jews used it uh, to, to remember where they had descended from. In the Old Testament, you see that the Canaanites were the most persistently most hated people of all of Israel's enemies. They, the Canaanites were hated badly. So they go to a hated place and he encounters what all the Jews would have seen as a hated woman. Their idolatrous religion was a constant threat to the religious purity of God's people. They were a violent, wicked, detestable people that God commanded the Israelites to destroy all the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. You see that over and over again. Joshua 9, 24, Exodus 23, 23, Deuteronomy 7, 1 and 2, Joshua 3, 10. He commanded, God commanded absolute genocide of these people. Kill them all. So to the devout nationalist Jew, the very existence of, the, of these descendants of the Canaanites was a reminder of their own people's failure to eradicate them like God had commanded. They hated the Syrophoenicians in much the same way that Jonah hated the Ninevites, desiring their destruction much more than they desired their repentance. So Jesus is in an area where no traditional Jew would have ever wanted to go and he's being approached by a person who no traditional Jew would ever want to help. So what should we expect? Should we expect rejection? Well, there's actually one thing that would make us, in the, in, that we've read up to this point, that would make us legitimately think that Jesus might re reject her, just turn her away. Remember in the missionary discourse in 10, 5 through 7 where he tells the disciples, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and as you go preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That would make us think, well maybe Jesus would just turn her away. Or, but wouldn't we be more likely to expect compassion? We've seen several reasons to expect compassion. We'll consider three of them. One thing is Jesus absolutely loves to violate the compassionless tradition of the elders. He kind of likes making them mad. He kind of likes doing the opposite of what they would have done. Right? 
He loved to do things for people that the Pharisees wouldn't want him to serve, like lepers, like tax collectors, and like sinners. Hey, he really liked to go after the people on the outskirts of society, on the, on, on the fringes. Remember in 9.12, they had a problem with him running around with tax collectors and sinners, and Jesus says it's not they who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I, speaking of God, desires compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call righteous but sinners. But the sinners he's talking about there, they're mainly Jews. So it looks though like, you know, I think he'll probably heal her. And then secondly, remember, Jesus has already mentioned Tyre and Sidon favorably once earlier in, the, in Matthew. In Matthew 11, 21-22, he speaks to his own hometown, Woe unto you, Horazin, and woe unto you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. So he compares them favorably and says, These people are better than you Jews are. Which kind of makes us think too, as you're reading. Maybe he's going to have some compassion here. And Jesus has quoted the book of Jonah in 12, 41-42. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus knew the book of Jonah. Duh, right? Of course Jesus knew the book of Jonah. And Jonah was a terrible man for not wanting the repentance of the Ninevites. So I think we should expect... Mercy to be extended here. And then when you look at her plea, I, you know, you look at the plea, if you're just walking through it and you don't know the end of the story, the plea would make you expect it all the more because what a beautiful plea that she gives in verse 22. She began to cry out saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, Son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. In these few words, we, th- we see three wonderful things. We see persistence, we see pity, and we see a, prof- a profession of faith. First, the persistence. This, she, she began to cry out. That is in the active imper- imperfect sense. Active and perfect. So it means that she keeps calling out. So she's doing it over and over again. She just has to be heard. We've seen this one other time with the blind men when they came to Jesus in 9, 27, and 28 that they followed after him crying out. Same thing, active and perfect, over and over again. Have mercy on us. And they too said, Son of David. And what was the end of that story? He healed them, didn't he? And, and the request that she has here is, Have mercy on me, Lord, Son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. There's pity that she's desiring. This word for mercy is, the, is related to the same word as compassion in the Greek. It's basically the same word. Just one letter is different. So she's wanting compassion. And God desires compassion, right? And, and she pleads for mercy, not justice. That matters. Hey kids, if you've done something wrong and then you defend yourself to me when I'm telling you you're wrong, are you going to get mercy or are you going to get justice? Kids? My kids, the ones that I have born, that have created, right? You're going to get justice. But if you come in humility and you admit you're wrong, you're, you're likely to get mercy, aren't you? It's just the way that it works. She ain't asking here for reparations. She ain't. She doesn't accuse the Jews of genocide and tell Jesus that he owes her because her people have been oppressed by all the Jews. 
She doesn't demand affirmative action because people who look like her have not been equitably represented in his ministry. Everyone of Jesus' disciples were Jews. She doesn't point that out and say, why didn't you get any of us Syrophoenicians on your team? She doesn't do that. And although Jesus has healed a Gentile or two, they've not been equitably represented. She doesn't rebuke Jesus for not having enough equity, diversity, and inclusion in his ministry because she hasn't been taking score. She knows she needs mercy. She knows that she needs pity. She knows she's in a terrible state. She comes to him not correcting him, but wanting mercy from him. Jesus is appealed to based on her need, not her merit. Mrs. MacArthur, she knew she did not deserve Jesus' help. She knew she was unworthy of Him and that her only hope for undeserved forgiveness was in His gracious mercy. By definition, the person who asks for mercy asks for something that is undeserved. This woman does not come demanding but pleading. She did not ask Jesus for help on the basis of her goodness but on the basis of His. And also, another thing about this pity, it's not just pity for her that she's asking for and mercy for her. It's outwardly focused too. She's hurting over her daughter. Verse 22, My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. She and her daughter were considered by her to be one and the same. She said, he says, Have mercy on me. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. I love those, the natural affections of that. When our children hurt, do we not hurt with them? Of course we do. And she's, that's, that's in her heart. You can feel that as you read and you think through this text. We don't get too much explanation here, but this young girl's condition is undoubtedly severe. She isn't just demon-possessed. What's it say? It, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. The word for cruelly here means severely, grievously, wretchedly, reproachfully. So many adjectives. And each one only heightens our speculation about the cursed condition of this young lady. Demon possession can manifest many problems. It can cause physical problems. Remember, we've seen it. Demons cause people to be blind or mute or deaf. It can cause violence. Remember in 828 when, when Legion, that they... they they often threw him. Bo- I'm sorry that they were the people were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way because of the demon possessed men, and they had super strength that nobody could even bind them or hold them down. And it can cause you to want to cause self harm. In Mark 9:22, a demon possessed person is said to have thrown themselves into the fire and into the water to destroy him. It can make you suicidal, self destructive. I don't know exactly what all this cruelly demon-possessed was like, but it was clearly really, really bad case. And the mother's torn up. And not only do we see this, this persistence and this pity that she's desiring, but look at the profession of faith. Lord, Son of David. This Canaanite is using this title... <laughs> And that's astounding. In, Jesus, in response to Jesus' miraculous powers, the Jewish crowds have one time suggested as an outlandish possibility that this couldn't be the son of David, could it? But the Pharisees responded to the mere suggestion of that by saying, no, he cast out demon by the power of Beelzebul. So the Jewish leaders rejected him outright as a demon from hell, even though he's doing these miracles. The masses threw it out as a possibility, but they weren't really convinced of it. But she with confidence, she says, Lord, son of David. In Israel, Jesus has been called a demonic, gluttonous drunk who is a companion of sinners. 
But this Canaanite woman who has less knowledge of the Scriptures than these Jews do and has only heard of and not seen the miracles does more with the little that she knows than they do with the much that they know. Like the Magi from the East, she apparently knew of the worldwide messianic expectation that a world leader would arise from the Jewish people at this time and gain universal rule of all the nations. By unexpectedly using this Jewish messianic title in this foreign land, she's hoping to attract Jesus' interest and sympathy. She saw Jesus as her only hope. The majority of the book of Matthew sets us up to expect Jesus to at least respond warmly, but instead... What we get would have been the predictable Jewish response. We don't get the predictable Jesus response right here. It seems as if every time that there's a hurting, humble person, Jesus has readily healed them. But what do we see in verses 23 and 24? Well, first from Jesus in verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. Given the attitude of the other Jews to Canaanites, Jesus' silence couldn't have surprised her much. She'd probably already endured insults and verbal abuse from Jews all the way through her life. Wouldn't have, wouldn't have surprised her. So far, R.T. France says, Jesus is acting the part of a traditional Jewish leader. You remember in John 4, 9, when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman at the well and her response is, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink of me since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And the Samaritans were half-Jews. And if an Orthodox Jew wouldn't have any dealings with a half-Jew Samaritan, how much less a Canaanite, as they insultingly referred to this Syrophoenician population? Of course not going to have anything to do with her if, she's, if he's a normal, regular Jew. This episode is absolutely brutal to think about. The woman's in agony. She's desperate. She's humbly and respectfully calling out over and over again, urgently begging for the help of the only man alive who can deliver her beloved daughter from the power of these terribly destructive demonic forces. And what does she get? Nothing. John Chrysostom, early church father, he says, The word has no word. The fountain is sealed. The physician holds back his remedy. Sometimes the hardest response to endure is no response at all. Wouldn't you almost rather be argued with is ignored? If you get a negative response, at least you've been acknowledged. But to be completely ignored feels completely dehumanizing. As she continued to plead with Jesus, and continued to, and he continued to ignore, uh, and he continued to ignore her, the disciples got tired of hearing it, and they appealed to Jesus to deal with this nuisance. So we get another predictable Jewish response from them. What happens with the disciples in verse 23? And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away because she keeps shouting at, her, at us. It kind of stresses me out to think about the chaos of this situation. The woman kept crying out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter's cruelly demon-possessed, wailing continually, and certainly with more passion and more volume, the more that she was ignored. <coughs> and the disciples got tired of hearing it. I mean... In their defense, they're tired in general. They've been wanting a break from the constant ministry for a while now, haven't they? And, but Jesus wouldn't give them a break. 
Because he kept healing people and that brought more people. And finally they're getting this break. And the, and the disciples are afraid of the political and religious, religious persecution. And they just wanted to lay low for a bit. And if Jesus starts healing people again, your life will start getting a crowd. And now finally they're in Gentile country. No crowds, no unwanted attention. But this one annoying woman keeps calling out. And she's not a Jew. Jesus has no responsibility toward her. You say, well, that, that don't sound right, Matt. Hey, guys, you've got more responsibility toward your kids than you do toward mine. You know that? Jesus doesn't have any direct responsibility toward her. He's the Jewish Messiah. I'm sure they're thrilled that Jesus is, refer, is refusing to respond, but they'd be even more thrilled if Jesus just sent her away and they start hounding him to do so. It says, His disciples came and implored him in verse 23. And it mirrors the Canaanite woman from that region coming out and beginning to cry because both are in that active imperfect verbs. That means that basically you can say that the woman won't shut up and the disciples won't shut up about wanting her to. She just keeps on wailing and wailing and wailing. The disciples are like, please, Jesus, make her shut up. Just tell her to go away. I'm tired of hearing it. Women can be loud sometimes, you know. I got in trouble right then, didn't I? And they don't want Jesus to heal her. They just want, him, they just want her sent away. The healing would bring attention. To most Jews, a Canaanite woman's existence itself was offensive to them. They were supposed to have been killed all centuries ago. The disciples are probably like most Jews here. She was an insignificant member of a wicked people group. To them, her problems are just that. Her problems. Send her away, Jesus, please. And finally, Jesus responds. He doesn't send her away, but the disciples have to like hearing another predictable Jewish response from Jesus again in verse 24. And he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The disciples have heard that before. We've already seen, haven't they? From the missionary journey. He quotes what he told them in the missionary journey. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Not to the Gentiles. Not to the Samaritans. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It likely thrilled them to hear him say this to her. For once Jesus was going to take care of them and himself. Jesus was the king of the Jews. Jesus had no responsibility toward this woman. No obligation toward her. Jesus' God-given mission during His earthly advent was to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This declaration again shines a light on the purpose of, his ministry, uh, of this journey. It's a retreat for Him and the disciples. It's not an extension of His mission. We've already seen He wanted nobody to know where He was. Yet He couldn't escape notice. However, within Jesus' discouraging response, there's a ray of hope if you think about it. People often focus on the wrong point here. They focus on the fact that Jesus is adamant in his refusal to help this woman when the, suggest the conjunction here is but. They say send her away, but Jesus doesn't do what they say. But highlights the fact that he didn't listen to the disciples' request to simply send her away. He gave her audience. He listened and even replied to this Gentile woman. There's grace in that. It might just be a spark of grace, but there's grace in that. This woman is begging for help. The disciples are begging him to get her out of their hair. But a discouraging response is a response. And Jesus doesn't even consider the disciples' suggestion to be worthy of an answer. So it's a refusal mixed with hope. Now how will she respond? Many people would take, would take offense. So much for your God of love. Right? 
Your message of compassion and, and your narrow, bigoted religion, I want nothing to do with a God or a religion like that. She doesn't go there, does she? She shows perseverance. Look in verse 25. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. Jesus emphasizes the importance of perseverance in Luke 11, 5 through 10. Suppose one of you has a friend, remember this? And goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside, he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door is already shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he won't give up, get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his persistence... He'll get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, remember the words of Jesus, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. And that ask, seek, knock are all in that active, imperfect tense. You got, it's, it's ask and keep asking. It's seek and keep seeking. It's knock and, seek, and keep knocking. It's, it's don't give up. God-given faith is a persevering faith. I see so many people run to God when their life hits rock bottom. Have you seen it? Life hits rock bottom and they run to God. Marriage problems, problems with their children, money problems, health problems, and they go to church once or twice and they say their prayers for a few nights and then they're shocked when everything isn't just instantly better. The problem is they don't really believe. They're just trying religion on for size. They'll try this God thing out if it proves to be a quick fix. But if things don't immediately happen exactly like they think they should, then the next day they'll curse God to His face. But that prideful response is not the response of this woman. What do we see from this woman's persevering response? Well, first we see humility. Jesus tells her that His mission does not include her or her needs. Jesus' words indicate a lack of concern for her daughter's suffering. She's crying out, my daughter is cruelly tormented by demons. Help me. And he says, that's none of my concern. I'm not sent to you. He doesn't say I'm unable to help. He says it's not my job and it's not my duty. That's what Jesus said to her. But Jesus' discouraging response doesn't run her off. It draws her in. She's refused by the Lord, but she comes all the more to him. She heard his refusal and she came closer. But not only do we see, we see humility, but we see worship. Notice it says, she came and began to bow down. This word for bow down, literally to prostrate oneself, is frequently translated as worship. It seems as if worship is at the heart of this response. She felt her smallness. She felt her inferiority. She felt her uncleanness in comparison with his power, his superiority, and his emanating holiness. And she threw herself at Jesus' feet and pleaded with him, even with more great desperation, Lord, help me. She has nowhere else to turn. Brothers and sisters, you'll never really seek after God until you realize you have nowhere else to turn. God-given faith perseveres even when it seems that you're being rejected by God. Even when you're, you're to the point of desperation, you're like, but God's not hearing me. Things aren't, I'm trying, I'm doing everything I know and things aren't getting better. God-given faith doesn't say, so I'll quit. It says, so I'll press on more because John 6, 68 through 69, Lord, to whom else shall we go? 
For you have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. If He's God and He's the only one with the power to fix things, even if He's refusing you, He's the only solution you've got. He's it. Desperate, weak, helpless and needy and only He can help. I'd rather cry to the one who can help me but refuses than to cry to the one who is instantly willing to help but unable, wouldn't you? You, you have no hope with a guy that can't help you but he's willing. But with the one that's able but seems unwilling, he's the only hope I've got. Feel that desperation. She felt that desperation. It's really a situation that we're all in. All the time. Often God refuses for a time to refine and purify the faith that He's granted us. People seem to believe that Christ should be at their beck and call just because they express their faith or say a prayer. Let me tell you something. He's not impressed. He owes you nothing. That little expression of faith that you conjure up does not atone for the mountain of sin that you have. Not, and notice I say that, that you have committed. No, that you are still guilty of right now, every moment of every day, your heart is wretched. The little expression of faith you've got, it earns you nothing. Even your faith itself is feeble and tainted with selfishness. You think hers wasn't? Think about her faith. It's just because what's driving her? She's concerned about her daughter. It's, it's, it's not just because she loves Jesus so much. Isn't that the way our faith is? So self-serving in so many ways. If your faith is in your faith instead of being in Christ, then it's misplaced. And it'll certainly fizzle out also. Only a God-given faith in Christ alone will cause you to persevere to the end, to the saving of your soul. Do you have that sort of unshakable faith? Jesus isn't finished creating this situation that displays the greatness of this woman's faith. And that is what he's doing. We know the end of the story, right? That's what's going on here. But he's drawing it out. He's drawing it out. He goes from ignoring to rejecting and now to insulting. It gets that bad. Look at verse 26. Look at this put down. And he answered and said, It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Even, even being 2,000 years removed from this event, and in our vastly different cultural context, we can see that this is an insult, can't we? If I say, man, look at that woman, she's a dog. Who thinks that's a compliment? Anybody in here? No, of course not, right? Like, hey, did you see that woman? I don't even have to say dog. I can say, you see that woman? Wolf, wolf. You know that's not good, right? But there's more than that going on here. We see a negative comparison. We see a racial slur and a doctrinal statement being made. Let's begin with this negative comparison. In this comparison, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, from verse 24, they're the children. And this woman, her daughter, and her entire ethnicity are the dogs. That's the comparison. Lost sheep of the house of Israel that I was sent to, that's the children. I'm sent to them. They're important. They are children. You're a dog. Your daughter that you love so much, not important like a child. A dog. All your ancestors, your mom, your dad, your grandma, your meemaw, hey, you know what they are? Dogs. 
For some people who use ridiculous terms like fur babies and call themselves ridiculous titles like dog mom or dog dad, or for people who are deranged enough to say that if somebody kills a dog that they should be tried for murder just like somebody that kills a person. I've seen that. And I've seen conservatives that want to say, yes, yes, they should try somebody. You kill a police dog, you should be tried for murder. Guys, that is elevating animals up to the point of humans and humans are made in the image of God and animals aren't. That matters. Some People quit preaching on that, but you'll find it in the Bible a lot. This comparison doesn't pack the punch. It should for people that don't get this. But the more sane societies know that animals are not as important as people are. Clearly, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. If you all have limited bread and your kids are hungry and your dogs are hungry and you feed your dogs instead of your kids, you need to be reported to the authorities and have your kids removed from you. You've got something wrong in your brain. Right? By using the word throw, Jesus is saying, it's kind of, it's it's emphasizing the point. If you're not going to take the bread and just fling it out to the dogs, giving them... Taking the blessings intended for Jews and giving them to pagan nations is wasteful, is what Jesus is saying. It's say, Jesus is saying, I have limited time and you and your daughter are not as important as my people are. But there's more going on here. We see Jesus use also a, it's a, it's a racial slur. Uh-oh, don't let this get out to the woke mob or they're going to cancel Jesus, right? Sorry, wokey McWoke face. Jesus is uncancelable. You can't cancel him. It's impossible. You might not like that he calls this woman a racial slur, but he does, and he's still king of kings, and he's still lord of lords, and he still lived a sinless life. Amen? Jewish people call Gentiles dogs as a deliberately offensive term for Gentiles. It's true that the Greek term used here isn't the word that's used for a mongrel scavenger dog, but it instead refers to something like a little puppy. But only our pet-worshipping Western culture would think that reduces the offense, offense, right? A little dog is no less unclean than a big dog. The children are in a position of right and privilege. This is R.T. France again. Which the dogs cannot hope to share. What is holy shouldn't be cast to the dogs. And lastly, let's consider the doctrinal statement being made. Remember the section out of which we just came in 15, 19 through 20? For out of the heart of men come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. We must not forget that this woman, like all people, is a sinner. She is, you are, it's all of us. She's not worthy of grace. You know how I know? There's no such thing as being worthy of grace because if you're worthy of it, it's not grace. You're getting justice if you're worthy of it. He doesn't owe grace to anybody. He can dispense it to whomever he wants to. He's God. He's holy. You're not. You're deserving of wrath and judgment and punishment. And He can have mercy on whom He will have mercy, and He can have judgment on whom He will have judgment, and there's no injustice with God. Why? He's God! We can't forget this. This woman is from a nation that's known for its blatant immorality. They don't even honor the law of God. They don't recognize it on any level. They're known for their licentious bell worship and their orgiastic love feasts. These people, including this woman was defiled by her sin. 
Her daughter wasn't some innocent bystander who was such a holy young lady and then some demons came out of the bushes and then overtook her. No, she had gone down a life of sin and been given completely over to demons. To leave her there is justice. And justice isn't a bad thing, is it? We want to make Jesus the bad guy. Jesus is never the bad guy. Ever. There was a need for forgiveness. There was a need for cleansing from defilement of sin. But check out this glorious display of poorness of spirit that she shows in verse 27. That might be hard for us to swallow, but it wasn't for her to swallow. She got this. Listen to this response. But she said, yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. She receives the insult. That's the first thing I want you to notice. She doesn't say, no, Lord. She doesn't say, how dare you. She doesn't tell Jesus that he doesn't even know her or her daughter. We must note the humility of God-given faith here. And she still calls him Lord. She doesn't call him jerk. She doesn't say, no, Lord, you're a jerk. She says, yes, Lord. Not jerk, not arrogant bigot, not xenophobe. She calls him Lord. She recognizes his ability and his right to determine how he will deal with her. He is the superior, she is the inferior, and she gets that. He's the Lord. And then she applies Jesus' insulting analogy with wisdom. Two things I want to point out here. She accepts that the Jews are a superior people to her own. Some cultures are superior to others. Did you all know that? I'll answer that. Yes, you did know that, but you've been told you're not supposed to acknowledge it. You know that. If you're wearing loincloths and chunking spears, you're an inferior culture to somebody that's writing symphonies and has muskets. You just are. Amen. A cannibalistic culture is inferior to one that isn't. A culture that celebrates the murder of infants is inferior to a culture that doesn't. A culture that outlaws sodomy is superior to one that hosts parades celebrating blatant immorality. A culture that chemically castrates their sons and cuts the healthy breasts off their daughters so that they can play make-believe that they're the opposite gender is inferior to a culture that raises its sons to be men and its daughters to be women. Cultures that outsource the education of their children to God-denying government that indoctrinates them into Marxism is inferior to one where the the parents teach their children the laws of God when they rise up, when they lie down, and as they go about their way. Some cultures are superior to others. And the culture that's superior is the one that acknowledges the law of God. Now, the Jews, they've twisted it. They've messed it up. There could be better cultures than the Jews. But the Syrophoenician culture, it was wicked. You have no idea. They were a wicked, godless, wicked, awful people. And she knew that. She knew that the Jewish laws were better, that the Jewish people were a better people, so she accepts that the Jews are a superior people to her own. She allows herself to be labeled as the dog, not the child. But she makes a beautiful argument. Look what she does. She points out that compassionate masters even care for their animals. That's, that's pretty cool. What wisdom? She doesn't make her appeal based on her own goodness. 
But instead, she appeals to him on the basis of his goodness. Even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. She's saying, you owe me nothing, but you have so much to give and you're so good. You, you have plenty and you're, you're a kind master. You've got so much that your kids can be fed and there's leftovers and they fall off the table and you're not going to feed the, le- the leftovers that fell off the table on the ground to your kids. You'll just let the dogs have it because you're compassionate enough to care that these little hungry dogs need something too and you've got enough. You'll let us have it because you're good. You're kind. Sure, Jesus wasn't sent to tire and side on. But Solomon wasn't sent to the Queen of the South either. But the Queen of the South came to Solomon and in Matthew eleven forty two says the Queen of the South will rise up with this generation, the Jewish generation, which wouldn't accept Jesus although he was sent to them. The Queen of the South, was, Solomon didn't go to her, but she came to Solomon and received of his wisdom. And because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon she will rise up against this generation of Jews even though she was a Gentile. This Syrophoenician woman, this Canaanite woman, even though Jesus wasn't sent to her, she came to Him believing that He was the Son of David and the Lord even though those He had came to had rejected Him. And she'll rise up in judgment over them. When, she, when the Queen of the South came to Solomon, she wasn't turned away. And Jesus is greater than Solomon. He won't turn her away either. And that's where we finally get to this pronouncement of mercy. He delayed. But he delayed only to show her faith. And in the end, he did exactly what he was going to do the whole time. Look at verse 28. Then Jesus said to her, O woman... At that time you could say, O woman, and that wasn't inappropriate. Nobody got mad, right? O woman... Your faith is great, and it shall be done to you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. She may not be a descendant of Abraham, but she had a faith like Abraham's faith. God didn't give Abraham the son that he promised he was going to give him until Abraham was 100 years old, but he believed all the way to the end, didn't he? And you remember Abraham, he was the father of the Jewish nation, but he was caught out of paganism, wasn't he? God's calling her out of paganism too. But Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. She hasn't had to wait as long as Abraham had to wait, but Jesus still recognizes that same sort of faith and he says, your faith is great. What a word of commendation. Over and over again, Jesus has told the disciples, oh, you of little faith. We pointed that out, hadn't we? says that over and over again. Oh, you have little faith. And now right in front of the disciples, he tells this woman who they despise and who they look down on that her faith is great. He turns it around. They've, they've compared her unfavorably to themselves and now he turns it around after, after waiting, after beating her up, after insulting her. In the end, it exposes a great faith that God has given and he's told them, oh, you have little faith. And now he says, hey, this Syrophoenician woman, this Canaanite, she has great faith. What are we justified by? By faith. By faith. And I think that's the main point of this narrative. Only one other person in the book of Matthew has been told that they have great faith. Do y'all remember who it was? Turn to Matthew 8, 5. 
We're almost done. And by almost done, I'm going to have you turn here and then somewhere else. But two more places. Matthew 8, 5 through 12. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion, a Roman centurion, an old Gentile, came to him imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I'll come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say, go and he goes. And another come and he comes. And to my slave, do this. And he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled, and he said to those that were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. You see what he's doing? Throughout the book of Matthew, he's doing this again. These Israel people, they're the people of God. No, they're not. They're not the people of faith. There's something that's going to happen. There's a switch that's taking place. And then he says it explicitly there in verse 11. I say to you that many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the, in the end, the dogs aren't a nationality. The dogs are those that don't believe and the children are those that do. The sons of the kingdom will be cast out, but these will sit at the table with Abraham. There's a switch coming. That generation of Jews would be judged, and all those that believe would be ushered in and grafted in and and adopted into the very family of God. Why? By faith. But who gets adopted? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those that can say, hey, I'm not worthy... Those that aren't contending for their rights, but say, I have none. All my rights have been forfeited. I'm a sinner. I'll receive whatever insult should come my way. I'll still call you Lord because you're all I've got. And I need your mercy. And I'll follow you no matter what. That's the sons of the kingdom. The faith of the Gentiles. Who have been given much less light. Has far exceeded the faith of the Jews who have been given more. Jesus increasingly discouraged this Canaanite woman from coming, but she wouldn't be denied. In contrast, what do we see from this generation of Jews? Remember what he says in Matthew 23, 37 and 38, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her, how often I wanted to gather you together, uh, gather your children together, the way that a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house, your temple is being left to you desolate. I'm going to judge you and take all this away from you because you rejected me. And in Matthew 21, 42 and 43, Jesus said, Do you not read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. And this came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, the Jews, and given to a people producing the fruit of it, a faithful people. He says, Your faith is great, but my mercy is great. It shall be to you as you wish, and her daughter was healed at once. That a Canaanite of all people should receive the compassionate ministry of Israel's Messiah would be a potent symbol to Jewish readers of the universality of the gospel. And that's the point he's making here. That's the point. 
Yes, God is under no obligation to extend grace, but that's what makes His grace all the more astounding. He's not under obligation, but He lavishes it on us anyway. Last place I'll have you turn is Ephesians 1. Seven through nine, in Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to the kind intention which He purposed in Him. God did not give us what He owed us. We don't want that because He owes us wrath. But rather, He took on Himself what He owed us. And He purchased mercy for a sinful people. And He granted us faith to the saving of our souls. Ephesians 2, 11-19. We'll read this and we'll be done. Ephesians 2, 11-19. We see here Paul fleshing out what Matthew is setting up for us in the Gospel. Therefore remember that you formerly, the Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants and promise, having no hope without God in the world. That was the Syrophoenician state. That's who she was. That's who we were. But now Christ, who you who formerly, in Christ, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that He Himself... He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. Verse 17, And He came and preached peace to you who were far off, you Jews, you Gentiles, you Syrophoenicians, you Canaanites. He preached peace to you who were far off. And He preached peace to you who were near, you Jews. For that through Him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father so that you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer the dogs that need the scrap from the table. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and you are of God's household. You're children. And He's going to give you your bread. And that's what we're going to take today. We're going to come and we're going to take the bread. We're guilty. We're sinners. We're unworthy of anything. But His body was broken. And His blood was shed. And we come in faith and we receive our due. Our, what, what, what is our just due? You say, how's that? Because as many as believed, He gave the right to be called the sons of God. You're His child today and you come to the table as His child. You're a bunch of Gentiles. Not one of us is a Jew nationally. But we are by faith because we've got the faith of Abraham. Come and receive forgiveness and pardon. Not as dogs getting scraps from the floor but as children of God grafted in through the shed blood of Christ Jesus. That's something to rejoice over. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for the great hope of the Gospel. We thank You for the great work You do. Pray, Lord, that You'll give us faith, Lord, when it seems that we're being rejected, that we'll persevere, that we'll continue in faith, that You'll sustain our faith because we are Your children. And that, Lord, You will give us everything that You promise. We thank You for extending those promises to us. We are unworthy, but You are good. Lord, we rejoice in that today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And amen.